Good morning, Vermont, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm your host, Brad Wright. We have a great uh, program lined up for you this morning. Uh, Ross Lieblappen from Vermont State University is on the line. He'll be talking with us in just a sec. But I do want to make one quick observation about a word that is getting thrown around a lot these days. And the word is anti-Semitic. It has been coined in a way to say anti-Jewish. But is it really correct, given the reference to the Semites or Semitic people? The answer appears to be, yeah, sort of. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines the Semites as of, relating to, or constituting a subfamily of the Afro-Asiatic language family that includes Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Amharic, and others. It can also mean of or relating to the characteristics of the Semites, and it also means Jewish. Uh, But the Semites refers really to a language group, not so much a race. There's a thought for today. On the program today, Professor Ross Lieblappen of Vermont State University discusses an upcoming trip to the Arctic with some of his students uh, to investigate what's in the melting permafrost. We'll chat with Kevin Gaffney, Commissioner of Financial Regulation, about crypto investing. We'll also have a conversation with Nick Longo of the Leahy uh, Burlington International Airport about new terminal construction and what's going on with the airlines coming and going. And also with Ernie Patno of VTrans about driving in the winter. Did you all have fun on the roads yesterday? Yeah, probably not. Highway plowing, maintenance, it's all. Uh, but first, let's welcome our first guest, uh, Professor Ross Lieblappen of Vermont State University. Welcome. Thank you very much, Brad, and happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Uh, Professor Lieblappen received a BA in Environmental Studies and Chemistry from the Middlebury College, a Master's in Mathematics from UVM, and a PhD in Engineering Sciences from Dartmouth, starting with examining the pore structure of soil systems in 2006. Ross has been using X-ray CT scanning to probe things like the microstructure of snow, ice, and other geologic samples from Antarctica to the Arctic. Uh, that's that sounds enormously complicated, uh, Professor Lieblappen. Um, is it difficult? It's not quite as complicated as some of the uh, fancy jargon makes it seem like. Um, I mean, most folks are familiar with the CAT scan if you haven't had one yourself, and the technology is nothing different than a CAT scan you have at a hospital. Okay. Um, so you're taking college students to the Arctic. Uh, I guess you don't have to worry too much about the kids hitting the bars on this trip, but um, but what will your students be doing? So this is very much a student-led expedition from all aspects. So we have undergraduate research students who will be participating in trips up to the Arctic um, in terms of collecting the ice cores, the permafrost cores, organizing all the logistics, um, helping transport these cores back to our lab, designing our lab, actually, since this is a brand-new lab, and then imaging the ice cores, and then eventually doing all the data analysis, writing papers, and presenting it at conferences. What is the value of of uh, scanning the ice cores? How, do, how does that uh, – what does that tell the students? So ultimately what we're looking for is to see, can we find the microbes that are in the permafrost and in the ice? So this is a biome that's very poorly studied um, in terms of its structure, and we want to understand how are microbes interacting with this type of, you know, 
terrain. You know, what is the permafrost structure like? Do microbes inter- interfere with that structure? Do they make it stronger? Do they make it weaker? How is their function in the um, in that biome influenced by the structure? And what can we really learn about this biome um, that's becoming an increasingly important biome in terms of understanding how this planet operates? Yeah. Uh, uh, listeners, uh, we do want to... Um uh, uh, field a couple of your questions. If uh, you are so inclined, you can call at 244-1777. That's 802-244-1777. Uh, questions for uh, Ross Lieblappen of Vermont State University. Uh, Professor, what part of the Arctic are you going to be exploring? So one of the goals of the project is to see how do the microbes and the structure differ across the Arctic. So we're actually going to be going to several different locations. This includes going up to Greenland, um, going to Alaska, where the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has a permafrost tunnel. Um, this involves going up to the Canadian high Arctic as well. Wow. Um, that sounds fascinating. How many, how many students? So the plan is to have somewhere between two to four students each year. Um, and, you know, when we go up to the Arctic, we generally want a group of five. So that would be myself and my co-PI, Michelle Sama. Um, we have a research scientist that will be joining the team, likely a postdoc, and then likely two students each time we go to the field. So how do you select the students? Yeah, that's the hardest part, right? You know, you mentioned field work up in the Arctic, and students in Vermont are, maybe unlike elsewhere in the country, are very eager to join the team. Um so the first two couple of students we've picked to join the team are students I've had in class that I know are really excited about this topic, you know, are interested in the results and want to get some undergraduate research experience. You're, um, you had mentioned that uh, you are focusing uh, to a large degree on the structure. Um, we see a lot of permafrost melting. I think I remember hearing a story a, a few years ago about uh, how a, a, a bomber an, a, a, from World War II that had had to land, I think it was in Greenland or Iceland, um, was eventually covered over by the permafrost and then has since been revealed again. Is that? Am I right about that? Is, is that something you're yes, familiar with? I'm not 100% sure. I don't recall the details of that story, but it does ring a bell. Um, I don't know a ton about that, but you are right in terms of the amount of permafrost that is indeed melting. You know, over the next 80 years or so, they're expecting 40% of the permafrost to be melting. That sounds frightening. I'm not sure why, but it does. Yeah, I mean, so there's several aspects in terms of the permafrost melting. One of them that folks are probably most familiar with is in terms of thinking about how climate change is impacted by, you know, the release of greenhouse gases. You know, folks are very familiar with, right, you know, carbon dioxide getting into the atmosphere and leading to overall warming. Um, well, it turns out permafrost is a carbon sink, meaning that it stores a lot of carbon in it. So when the permafrost melts, carbon dioxide gets released into the environment and then adds into the warming that's happening in our atmosphere particularly up in the Arctic. Wow, so it's compounding the problem. Exactly. We call these a positive feedback loop in science where, you know, one thing causes something else, and then that leads to the first thing increasing its effect. Hmm. Uh, the microbes that you find in the core samples, um, I remember reading something a while back that uh, 
there is some concern that some of these microbes may contain disease that, um, you know, we haven't had to contend with for thousands of years. Um, any concern about that? Well, I think the thing to remember about microbes is they're very diverse. I mean, there's a lots of different types of microbes, and they're in every type of, you know, ecosystem that you can imagine, right? There are definitely microbes, as you mentioned, that do carry disease and are pathogenic. But there's also a lot of microbes that are very good sources of nutrition and have therapeutic treatments. So in the pharmaceutical industry, for example, a lot of microbes, you know, the, where we find the drugs and cures for things come from these microbes. So, yes, there's concerns in terms of potential diseases, but there's also concerns, you know, or potentially benefits in terms of figuring out, well, what else can we learn from these microbes? Are some of them going to be resistant to various um, bacteria, antibacterial treatments? Or, you know, again, there can be both positive and negative aspects of these microbes that we could find. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that the core samples have to be uh, preserved and continue to be frozen. Um, is it is the what are the logistics of this? Is it a difficult trip uh, with a lot of with a lot of gear to make? Yeah. So, I mean, anytime you do work in polar environments, the logistics aspect is always pretty significant. Um, part of why I chose the Arctic over the Antarctic was the logistics are a little bit easier. Um, I've done work down in Antarctica as well, and then trying to coordinate transport of your samples and keeping them frozen can be a little bit more challenging. However, for the most part, generally cold ice packs um, do enough to keep things frozen, but we can also use dry ice, and they have various cryo shippers that even use liquid nitrogen um, depending on your logistical needs. There must it, it's it just must be very um, uh, very difficult work to look at uh, to get a computed tomography scan of ice and be able to to tease out uh, a microbe and be able to identify what's in it. How do you do that? Well, that's really the novel aspect of this work is that you know. The technology to do CAT scans has been around for a while, and I've actually been spent most of the last 15 years doing CAT scans of various geologic specimens, so soils and ice. But to get down to the microbes scale, you really need to get below micron resolution. You need to get into nanoscale. So it's really this brand-new CAT scanning machine um, technology that we call an X-ray microscope that allows us to essentially take what you think of as a microscope, um, which just magnifies an image along with the CAT scan that allows us to get down into the nanoscale. Wow. That is fascinating technology, um, something I'm going to tell you I'm completely unfamiliar with. Um, and so... Well, it's uh, brand new, so I wouldn't expect you to be familiar with it. <laughs> okay. Um, is... is um, so the students who would then be examining uh, the information that uh, is made available at the nano level, what level of student proficiency will they have to have? So generally, the goal is to try to get students involved right from the beginning of their careers and getting them excited about doing scientific research. So part of the process is training them. You know, that will be myself. That will be the postdoc who will be working on the project, as well as my co-PI, uh, Michelle Sama, as well. We have different skill sets, and together we'll be providing the mentoring to these students. And it's all right that they will be coming in 
with, you know, a basic, you know, undergraduate understanding of engineering processes. Uh, and, and that even, even, even at the undergrad level and understanding engineering processes is, um, uh, sounds very complicated to me. Um, and we've got great students at Vermont State University. I'll bet, yeah, I guess, I guess. Um, so it's my understanding that you got a grant to help pay for some of this. It's technically called a federal contract, um, but yeah, you can think of it like a grant from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, their Cold Regions Research and Engineering Lab out of Hanover, New Hampshire, is the vehicle that's funding this project. Uh, was it uh, difficult at all to uh, to be able to capture this uh, to capture this grant, or do you have an established track record with them so that you can you know so that you know what uh, you know how to navigate that uh, that process? It's a bit of a lengthy um, process for applying to what's called their broad agency announcement. Um, I've done work with Corel before and partnered with them on some projects. So I'm somewhat familiar with some of the overarching goals and why they're interested in polar environments and their interest in really in terms of, you know, things such as military access to these types of terrains and what it's going to mean in terms of, you know, trying to mobilize equipment across these environments and whatever threats they might experience in these terrains. Yeah, I was going to ask, that was my next question, what kind of threats you might experience in, in terrains like this? Um, you know, you hear, you hear of some of these, uh, uh, situations like, uh, uh, climbing Mount Everest where people can fall through a crevasse. Um, is there, uh, how dangerous is it? I mean, we do everything we can to ensure safety for the team. Um, so at all aspects, you know, the students, myself, we're going to be in a very safe environment. But part of that is all the research that goes into ensuring that, you know, travel in these areas is indeed safe. So, for example, the folks flying us to Greenland is the U.S. Um, sorry, is the military flights, the C-130s that fly out of Scotia, New York. While we're up in Greenland, we'll be having bear guards with us for in case we encounter polar bears. You know, there's work researchers over at Krell on uh, that Cold Regions Research and Engineering Lab that study crevasses and they map out where the crevasses are. So then we have safe travel through these regions. Wow. Okay. Boy, this is quite um, is quite a sophisticated operation. Um, does it cost the students anything to be able to go on a trip like this, or is this just part of the deal when they pay their tuition? Graduate researchers, they're providing a product, and they get paid for this summer work as well as some work during the you know student year so no there's no cost for the students in fact they'll be getting paid wow so they get paid and uh, i assume get credit at the same time no they can't you know they it's, you can't get both credit and get paid at the same time so they choose to over the summer get paid kind of more of as a job summer internship type thing and then during the semester they're busy with the rest of their coursework so they have fewer hours during the academic year. Interesting, interesting. We do have a caller on the line with a question. Uh, Mark from Middlesex, uh, what is your question for Professor Lieblappen? Yeah, morning. Um, has there been any uh, calculations as to uh, what we can expect for uh, methane discharge when uh, permafrost is uh, melting? Um, thanks. 
Thanks, Mark. I uh, also live in Middlesex, so I appreciate the question. Um, you are indeed accurate that methane is indeed one of the most prominent greenhouse gases that exist in permafrost that is being released as the permafrost melts. In terms of specific numbers, this is not an area of expertise of mine, so I wouldn't be able to give you an answer in terms of the quantity of methane offhand. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate your question. Um, do we have uh, a, 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 a date for this uh, for this trip? I mean, you said you mentioned it was going to be in the summer. It's a three-year project, um, so field work will be occurring summer 2024 and um, summer 2025, with a lot of the imaging work and that CAT scanning work happening during the you know academic year. Okay. Okay. Um, do you think that this is, um, uh, you know, with with uh, Vermont State University's uh, financial issues? Do you, is this a project that can keep going, um, you know, beyond say twenty twenty six? I hope so. Um, you know, the plan is to really form Vermont State University into a attractive option for Vermont high school students as well as students outside of the state to really say, hey, you know, we are doing groundbreaking novel research here, and this is an exciting place for you to get your education. You know, you can go up to the Arctic and study permafrost if that is something you want to. Um, so a project like this helps set that path, you know, helps allow for future projects to build off of it. You know, part of the project is buying this X-ray microscope that's a very expensive piece of machinery that doesn't exist anywhere else in the state. So once we have this machinery here, we can use it for future projects as well. Boy, that does sound like almost like a magnet for for a certain kind of student. Um, for a student who uh, is now in high school and would be interested in doing something like this, what would the coursework be for them uh, to uh, to be able to be even eligible for consideration? So there's no official pre-requirements to join onto a research team. But, you know, if I was speaking directly to any high school students right now, I would say focus in on your math and science courses and in particular your math courses. Math is the language of science, and the stronger your math skills are and the stronger your science skills are, the more opportunities you'll have um, down the road to really participate in some really groundbreaking research. Is there is there a particular uh, field of science that would be more beneficial than others uh, for for um, for uh, being able to be considered for something like this? Would it be physics or chemistry? Um, what would you recommend? I love this question so much, um, and I think it speaks directly to my background. Is that you know I think the way it used to be considered was each of these subjects operates in a silo. You know, if you're a chemist, you study chemistry questions. If you're a biologist, you study biology questions. But that's not really the way that scientific research operates anymore. You really, you pick a problem, an area of concern, a field of region. You know, maybe I study sea ice, which is what my background is. And it's helpful to have, you know, a biologist perspective and have some knowledge to say, you know, how are the microbes reacting? It's also helpful to have some engineering perspective to understand questions about structure. How about chemistry in terms of how pathways are, you know, what type of interactions are happening with atmospheric processes as well. So really a well-rounded education is best and simply follow the subjects you enjoy and don't try to really focus so much on these separate subjects. Everything is so interrelated. 
Wow. Uh, Professor Ross Lieblappen of Vermont State University, thank you so much for joining us. This just sounds like a fascinating project, and um, I hope that uh, perhaps down the road uh, maybe you'd be able to add uh, an additional student or two as this uh, as this project continues. Um, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we also want to thank our listeners for listening. Uh, we will be back in just a few minutes, but uh, we are Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining us in the studio is Commissioner Kevin Gaffney of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. And uh, joining us by phone is the Department's Assistant General Counsel, Ethan McLaughlin. Uh, welcome to you both. Yes, thank you. Welcome, and thank you for having us, Brad. Uh, it was great to get the reach out, um, especially knowing that I think the the driver behind that was one of the investor alerts that we did put out. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Commissioner, your department has recently sent out uh, a couple of those pretty serious warnings about uh, investing in cryptocurrency. So let's just start with a simple definition of what we're talking about here. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, Digital assets, uh, in other words, not dollar-denominated assets. Uh, I think what people mo- most commonly know is Bitcoin, um, and so uh, this is a a space that is uh, um, uh, lightly regulated right now. Um, it's you know we're regulating it through enforcement uh, um, and through the the um, mission of having greater. Uh, registration and licensure of these folks, but a lot of this is kind of happening um, uh, under undercover, and uh, so we don't usually find out until someone calls us with a problem getting their 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 money, getting a request to pay something like taxes ahead of receiving their money back and the like. But maybe first, just I wanted to step back and talk about the role of the department. Sure. Because I think it's I think it's important to talk about our role generally. So we are the chief financial regulator for not just uh, securities, which this is mostly in the lane, and banking, which it's which is partly in the lane, but insurance and captive insurance. And, I, and my approach and the department's approach to good regulation is to make sure there's um, a good balance between making sure there's a marketplace, there's a vibrant marketplace, because that's good for consumers in terms of choice and competition, but also making sure we have consumer protection. And the consumer protection comes through the enforcement of our regulations and laws uh, at the department, but it also comes through things like these these events, like just, just getting the word out, uh, consumer protection through education. We have to make sure that individuals are aware of the risks that exist out, out there and uh, what they can do to mitigate those risks. And if something bad happens, what to do then? Yeah. Um... I, I, I confess I've had a hard time understanding how uh, Bitcoin works, so I never went near it. Um, is there a safe way to invest in cryptocurrency? I think for entities that are uh, uh, currently uh, licensed and, and, and regulated, uh, there there is. I think um, with any any investment, you have to – first of all, I think it's important to understand the risk uh, involved and and sometimes 
we make this the general statement that all all in, all investments have risk. But riskier investments have significant risks so that those investing in riskier investments uh, should be prepared to potentially lose their investment um, and are willing to do that. And that gets back to um, who's investing and, and what that investment represents in terms of their assets. Uh, we were talking just before about retirement savings, and we're all kind of either in that early parts of our career saving for retirement or maybe near retirement or in retirement on a fixed income. And, you know, it really... Uh, I really lose sleep when I see stories and some of the enforcement actions that we've taken where people have uh, invested a substantial portion of their uh, assets in riskier riskier, uh, uh, um, investments. The the difference with cryptocurrency is that because of the kind of – I don't think we're there yet in terms of where we need to be to fully regulate these. We, we certainly have the ability to enforce and take action, and we do that. Um, but uh, there's a structural difference between crypto and, let's say, putting the money in your bank or having an, a money with a, an, an investment advisor. Uh, there's, a, there's a custodial responsibility that's transferred when you engage in a bank that has FDIC insurance or, you know, a credit union that has NCUA uh, insurance or uh, an investment advisor that has custodial duties. The custodial um, uh, responsibility is on that individual investor that invests in um, cryptocurrency. Um, there's also no intermediary. So there's this balance as a regulator. Now, we don't want to stifle innovation. We want to have great choice for consumers. We want to make sure Vermonters have the same opportunity for choice that's available throughout the throughout the market and the nationwide. But as the state uh, securities regulator, we also want to make sure Vermonters are protected. So if we feel we need to do more to alert Vermonters, then we're going to do that. And that's why you've seen a fair number of uh, investor alerts that we've issued going back to uh, 2021. Um, uh, and really, last year, about a year ago this time, we issued a, a, a kind of a, 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 an alert that highlighted all the different um, actions and orders we've taken um, just, to, just to kind of condense and highlight for individuals. We're not, as regulators, uh, we're not, we can't provide investment advice, we can't provide legal advice, but we can educate and we can at least let the, the consumers and the public be informed. Can you give us an example of a of a crypto scam that you've you've run into? I'm going to phone a friend uh, with uh, with Ethan on this one if he's on the line because um, he's certainly is and, uh, and Ethan McLaughlin is one of several assistant general counsels at the department um, uh, that uh, has worked on these. As a state securities regulator, we're also part of the North uh, North American Securities Administrators Association. So that's an association of all the states that uh, that uh, regulate securities. Um, and uh, we do a lot of uh, enforcement locally, but we also do a lot of multi-state enforcement when these actions really cross state borders. And Ethan and Jennifer Root and Aaron Moore, and I'm going to leave people out, but folks like that have done incredible work at NASA. And uh, I think Ethan probably can give you maybe just an example of or two of those. Sure. Counselor? Yeah, hi. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Um, you know, it's actually... 
it is difficult to name just one because there um, there are so many and they take so many um, so many different forms. Um, there are a lot of investment scams, which are you know, investments that seem too good to be true, um, where someone will be you know uh, touting some new cryptocurrency um, or you know cryptocurrency related investment, and you know they'll they'll really pump up the market and they'll. They'll pay a lot of people to, to sing its praises, and it'll be a, a so-called pump and dump where they raise the price, sell a lot of uh, it to ordinary individuals, and then um, dump their holdings at the top of the market, and it and it goes down to zero. Um, we also see crypto, because of some of its unique properties, the fact that it can be moved outside of the, the banking system instantaneously, um, being used by all sorts of um, conventional scammers because, um, and has really globalized and, and opened up, uh, you know, Vermont mainstream uh, investors to a whole, uh, literally to a, to a world of scammers. Because um, whereas it might be, you know, actually pretty difficult to, you know, mail $10,000 of cash to, to North Korea, um, you know, a, a, a scammer who's impersonating someone or, or tricks someone um, into sending them money, they can send crypto. And the minute they hit send, the, the money is gone and can be can be difficult to to retrieve. And some of the scams are really very intricate. Um, you know, we've had ones where, you know, someone had their money on a on a mainstream cryptocurrency exchange and a scammer reached out to them um, pretending to be that exchange and said, look, we'd like to upgrade you to our, to our professional platform. Um, and it all seemed legitimate, but in order to, you know, and there'd be less fees and they'd have, you know, access to all these other products, but they just had to transfer their cryptocurrency balance to the professional platform. So they did that. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it wasn't the it wasn't the cryptocurrency company they thought they were dealing with. It was a it was a scammer impersonating it, and um, and that money had, had left the the country. Oh, um, but there are there are many many other scams. One piece of advice we give people is that anytime someone you're dealing with, if you think you know them or, or trust them, if they insist on being paid in cryptocurrency or they're offering a big discount or incentive for you to send them cryptocurrency instead of paying through traditional rails, that should set off every red flag and an alarm bell um, that this, you know, is probably a scam or, or maybe. And anytime you're, you know, transacting in, in cryptocurrency using or investing it, you know, you need to be on, on high alert. Wow. Well, uh, wow. That. <laughs> It's 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 always somebody trying to put their hand in your pocket. Yeah. Um, Commissioner, who ends up being the target of crypto scams? Yeah, it's a good question, Brad. Uh, it's a variety. Um, I would say that um, you would think it would be um, more in the um, maybe older uh, those in maybe re- pre-retirement or retirement who are kind of, you know, the, the, the economy is, is tough right now with inflation and all, and those on a fixed income are probably looking for ways to yield more more income. And uh, so they could be targets. But actually, 
uh, about three times more fall into that kind of 20 to 49 category. And, and that kind of harkens back to, we have, we have work to do in, in both ends of the spectrum. And that's an area that we identified years ago as a department. We have a whole outreach team and I think you had, uh, AARP on uh, maybe more regularly on, on the show talking about scams and all. And so we do uh, outreach in that area. And we also do financial literacy in the high school areas. And really, that's the foundational knowledge that has to happen right now. All of this is very accessible on these fancy computers that we all have in our pockets, right? It's very accessible. The ease of use, ease of investing. If you have a Venmo account, there's a crypto button there. And, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and so we want to make sure that both the, you know, the more vulnerable population, maybe the older population, but also the younger population who hasn't kind of learned how to manage their finances yet. Yeah, you mentioned uh, financial literacy. Boy, it's really, really uh, something. Uh, you know, I, I've, it's funny. I've, I've known people who were super smart, very, very high up in their careers, can't balance a checkbook. Yeah. Yeah. So I, this, this spring I was, uh, we were at Winooski High School, uh, Treasurer Pichek and myself, uh, tag teaming with a, a class. Uh, there's a financial literacy class at Winooski High School as part of their, their graduation curriculum. And, uh, and it was a budgeting exercise. And it was really interesting to see them making kind of having to make difficult choices based on an income, um, and then figuring out how to figure out all those expenses. So, when it, when things are when you don't have a lot of disposable income, that's what really concerns me. When folks are, are investing in high risk investments, really investments that you know you should be prepared. Uh, that's money that you should be prepared to lose. If uh, that, and so we don't we want to just make sure that there's a balance here. There's a regulatory balance, but more more importantly that there's awareness that if people are investing in this and it's part of their disposable income and they choose to do it, they're free to choose to do it. I'm going to steal a. Uh, an analogy from Ethan that we were talking about the other day. Uh, you know, if you're skiing on the Vermont Hills, um, you can choose to go out of bounds and ski outside the, uh, the, the, the grounds. And, uh, eventually the rescue team will come and rescue you, but you're, they may have to put you back together, right? Because you're not, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're operating in an area that's not well regulated and not well controlled. So, so we just want to make sure that folks, uh, are aware of all the risks. Uh, we're going to continue this, this endeavor is important. We're going to continue to, to get our word out to, uh, the, uh, Vermont public. We're going to continue to share because I think it's important in our in our um, enforcement actions for people to read those and see the examples of what we uncovered, and that's going to help them maybe think about things that they're going to encounter. And you know, and what Ethan was talking about before the break was, I think, the overarching issue that you know there's cyber crime more broadly, but this is an area now I think that the cyber criminals see see as ripe for opportunity. Mm. Um. If you think you've been scammed, what should you do? Is there any shot at recovering your money? Well, uh, it's 
It's, it's, uh, yes, there is, and we have done that for Vermonters. It is challenging, I will say. Um, oftentimes these actions may in, end up in a, uh, bankruptcy proceeding, and then it's, then you're pegging to a Bitcoin or some other, some other, uh, uh, uh crypto, uh, uh, asset. And the challenge there is what is it worth, and is the, is that uh, are those monies going to be accessible at the time when those proceedings are concluded? Um, but what what folks can do, um, because oftentimes our uh, role as a, as the DFR, the Department of Financial Regulation, is a civil authority. But there's certainly the Attorney General's office here in Vermont. But then there's the FBI, and folks can can access the IC3, the uh, Internet Crime Complaint Center. Um, so that's uh, uh, the IC3 through the FBI. Um, we have uh, good relationships with our local federal partners. We have ongoing relations. We've had those for a number of years, sure. but certainly we've exercised those more in recent years with all that activity. And they can also just call the uh, DFR hotline at 833 833- DFR hotline, uh, and that will just get them uh, to us, and we can also assist and help them navigate. 833-DFR-HOTLINE. That's yep. the number to call yep. if you think you might have gotten burned in one of these scams. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, Ethan, um, if you're still there, uh, and you are, um, we have a uh, caller, Rich, from Starksboro. Uh, Rich, what's your question for uh, the Department of Financial Regulation? I don't have a question. I have more of a comment okay. uh, about there's a there's more to the risk of dealing with Bitcoin than uh, than loss of uh, loss of your uh, investment and risk to scam. There's also a risk to our world environment and climate change. These the for cryptocurrency uses these blockchain computing algorithms. They take incredible amount of, of computing power and they have uh server farms or all most of them are have moved to China because they burn coal and it's cheap. And uh so they were when you do when you're doing cryptocurrency you want to think coal and I've done some calculations, and the amount of electricity used by Bitcoin is equivalent to what it would take to have 27 Vermont Yankees running 24-7, 365 a year if they were totally dedicated to crypto, to Bitcoin. So that's also something to think about. Nobody wants to talk about it, and if they really had it on the very top of their mind, Bitcoin would be outlawed, but we can't keep these things on the top of our mind. Just want to mention that. Rich, thank you. That's a really uh, great point. Um, thank you for that, Rich. We appreciate it. Um, Kevin, I wanted to, uh, excuse me, Ethan, uh, rather, I wanted to ask you about uh, just in the 30 seconds or so we have left, um, what are your concerns about FTX and the whole Sam Bankman-Fried thing? Well, I think one of the things that's concerning is just that um, – you know, so many people got suckered in by um, by sort of this illusion that their size and having their name on stadiums and things like that meant that they were that they were safe um, and that they had big celebrity endorsers and that if they were spending so much money, um, they must be they must be safe. And it turns out they were able to do all those things because they were spending customer money. Um, and they were operating offshore, um, you know, out of the Caribbean, 
um, outside of the jurisdictional reach of a lot of regulators and design themselves in a way to make it, you know, their, their operations uh, opaque. And I just want to emphasize to people that, especially in this space, you know, size does not mean safety. Just because the company is big and appears to have billions of dollars does not in any way mean that they're, that they're safe. And if a company, you know, appears to be deliberately trying to avoid uh, U.S. regulation, you know, that's a, that's a red flag. You know, the history of unregulated financial systems is, is not good. Oh. It's not a good one. It, so, it, it is. Those would be my takeaways. All right. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, our guests have been Kevin Gaffney of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation and Assistant General Counsel Ethan McLaughlin. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and your information. This has been a great discussion. And do be careful, folks, with, <laughs> with crypto. We'll be back after this break. This is WDEV and Vermont Viewpoint.